service. You know about George Harrison, the quiet beetle, reluctant icon, sparkling guru, champion of Bangladesh, the dark horse. He escaped the imploding Beatles at age 27 with his own triple album masterpiece and staged the first large-scale benefit concert in rock history. You know about Eric Clapton, Slowhand, Yardbirds Bluesman, founding member of Cream, Blind Faith, The Plastic Ono Band, and Derek and the Dominoes. He overcame a heroin addiction and shot into the 80s and 90s as a solo superstar with a legacy as one of the great all-time guitarists. But this is not about George or Eric. This is about Patti Boyd, a model and photographer who inspired some of the greatest songs and careers already loaded with indelible hits, only to find herself trapped under their weight. I'm Nikki Lynette, and this story is about a girl. The train lurched to an unexpected halt at an unused platform just outside of London. Patty Boyd sat with three other girls, all dressed in school uniforms, and watched as the four Beatles bounded into the car. In 1964, the Beatles were a worldwide phenomenon, having recently blown the roof off of millions of American homes via Ed Sullivan's show. Patty had just bought their album, Please Please Me, days earlier. And then, only because she'd been cast in their first feature film, which was why they were all on this train now. The 19-year-old model had lately been too busy getting pouty for photographers to pay attention to the new pop sensation. But she dug the music, fan as she was of the same artists who had influenced the slightly older Liverpool boys. Singers like Elvis, Buddy Holly, and the Everly Brothers. Now, she found the Beatles' energy was even more intense in person than it was on record. Patty was just about as shy as a fashion model could be, but still chatted happily with everyone between takes. They were shooting a scene in which the band, playing fictionalized versions of themselves, hopped the train to escape mobs of screaming fans and then turned their attention to the beautiful girls on board. Patty was especially captivated by George Harrison, a tall drink of water who she thought was probably the best-looking man she had ever seen. At 21, he was the youngest and seemingly the most reserved member of the group, and his own slight awkwardness appealed to Patty. They hardly spoke to each other the whole day until he turned to her and said, Will you marry me? This was a commonly used bit among the Beatles, who would overwhelm pretty girls with exaggerated proposals of marriage, and Patty laughed. But then George followed up with a very real date invitation. She answered smartly that she thought her boyfriend Eric would love to meet him. George thought perhaps not. By the time she got home, Patty had come to her senses. You don't even like Eric, her roommate scolded her. 
Unfortunately, there was a second day of filming scheduled 10 days later, this time on the sound stage. She made a beeline for George, who lit up and asked her, how's your boyfriend? Without mentioning that he might be under a bus, since that's where Eric threatened he'd go when she dumped him days earlier, she told George only that her boyfriend was no longer in the picture. George smiled. Patty didn't want to be an actress. She had no interest in fame of any kind. She hadn't even wanted to be a model. She just lucked into it while training to be a beautician at Elizabeth Arton in London, where a friend of her mother had gotten her a job. Patty was crap at it. One day, Elizabeth Arden herself came in and berated her for the way she'd done her own eyeliner. Take a look in the mirror, Patty thought. But with no other options, salon life droned on. So when a client who worked for a fashion magazine asked Patty if she'd ever thought of modeling, she jumped. The woman hooked her up with an agent, and in a few months, Patty Boyd had more work than she could handle. Her wide-eyed, long-legged, golden-haired, anti-Elizabeth Arton look was exactly of the moment. Apart from the freedom and money modeling gave her, Patty landed in a whole new scene. Photographers, actors, artists, and dancers. London in 1963 was the technicolor city on the edge of a cultural revolution. Everyone could feel it. It was exciting as hell, and her life only went into hyperdrive when Patty started dating George Harrison. John Lennon had to keep his wife and baby son on the deal so as not to upset the screaming masses. But George dating a top London model was just too good for the marketing machine. Not that Patty didn't get plenty of venom hissed at her, along with legit death threats from would-be Mrs. Harrison's. But no matter. Patty Boyd and George Harrison were young, beautiful, and celebrated. George was on the road with the Beatles all the time, but Patty had no time to pine away. Attached to a Beatle, she went from busy model to icon of swinging London. Everyone wanted her. She did shoots for Vogue and Vanity Fair, shot television commercials, and walked the runway. She inspired fashion designers who named particular looks after her, and she and George were profiled as the it couple of the moment in the tabloids. When George was home, they made the scene, driving flashy cars, hanging at clubs with the Rolling Stones, eating at exclusive restaurants. They hung out with aristocrats and bohemians. George bought a house and Patty moved in. She learned to cook and loved it. She watched George learning to write his own songs and loved that. George was also learning to loathe touring. The pure madness of it all. The screaming, the danger, the press, the cops, the politicians, the controversies, the death threats. Everyone wanted a piece of them, literally. And no one listened to the music over the chaos. George called Patty every chance he got, sounding miserable. When he couldn't call, he wrote, sounding worse. More than anything, he just couldn't wrap his brain around it all. George Harrison had succeeded beyond anything he had ever hoped for, and now his life made no sense to him. This level of attention, fame, and wealth, he became preoccupied with the question, why me? What have I done to rise to this level? Who am I? 
Who am I really? They married in January 1966. George was 22, Patty 21. Paul McCartney was best man at the small registry office ceremony. A large wedding was impossible due to George's fame, but they were still forced to hold a press conference. A terrifying blur for Patty. But the honeymoon in Barbados was blissful. Everything in Patty's life in London was bliss. An incredible dream. That same year, the Beatles retired from touring. They were all relieved, and George was thrilled. The Beatles were now making pioneering advances in their recorded music, more and more experimental, and other artists followed. They were changing the culture in real time. But George's existential crisis only grew. Dizzy with fame and overshadowed by Lennon and McCartney's dominance in the Beatles, he began to tire of the London scene, and touring had made him weary of meeting new people, unless they were also musicians. In Los Angeles, a friend introduced him and Patty to the Indian classical sitar virtuoso Ravi Shankar, and George was immediately enthralled by the man and his music. Shankar gave him sitar lessons and soon invited them both to India. It was a momentous experience for George and Patty Harrison, who both received a crash course in the Hindu spirituality of Ravi Shankar and his guru, Tat Baba. Patty was astonished by the culture of India, where they traveled widely to ancient sites, met holy men, saw bodies burning in ceremony on the Ganges, and walked on a sacred pilgrimage with 3,000 people. It was truly a world away, and after six weeks, they returned home, enlightened. Eastern spirituality opened the doors to a new world for George Harrison, a place where he could finally seek his true self, outside of his one-dimensional identity as a Beatle, the mop-top pop star, and look for answers to his existential questions. But as George began walking through doors, he became less concerned about who was walking with them. Patty Harrison was zoned out, unreachable, back in 20 minutes. She chanted her mantra, sitting in lotus position, her mind clear of all thought. When she returned to herself, she was calm, relaxed, and renewed. Her first conscious thought was, I've got to tell George. Patty had been taking classes in transcendental meditation. She had enrolled in the spiritual regeneration movement in London while George was busy in the studio. It was February 1967, and George was working on the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band album, which would include his song, Within You, Without You, a full-scale Indian music production, his title refrain supplied by Patty's sister, Jenny. He was writing about illusion and reality, searching inside yourself for the divine. With his mind in this state as he returned home, he was more than receptive to Patty's feverish evangelizing for transcendental meditation and the man who introduced the practice to the West, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. A few months later, Patty learned that the man himself, the Maharishi, would be holding a 10-day conference for the spiritual regeneration movement in Wales. George needed no convincing, and pretty soon it was a hell of a party on a train bound for Bangor, 
all the Beatles and their partners, plus Mick Jagger, Marianne Faithful, and Patty's sister, Jenny. Early the next year, the whole Beatles entourage flew to India to join the Maharishi, this time for a retreat at his ashram in Rishikesh. For Patty, it was both a communal high point with everyone meditating, eating together, attending lectures and writing music, and the beginning of the end. The Beatles began to fracture, with McCartney and Ringo Starr leaving early and separately. John and George left later. Each man took something very different from the experience, though this wasn't clear to Patty at the time. What was clear was that her husband was a changed man. George Harrison became obsessed with meditation, losing himself in his practice. But he also started having depressive episodes, and Patty rose and fell with his moods. He was withdrawing into himself and away from her, and though the group still demanded his time and attention, he became less and less interested in the Beatles. And then there were the affairs. Patty was no fool. Of course, George had been with other women over the years. One night stands on the road, certainly, maybe a quick fling here and there, but it used to be a hell of a lot easier to look the other way. Now he was being open with it. George started to see himself as being like the god Krishna, a deity depicted as having thousands of wives. He said this to her. He actually told this to Patty, all part of his new policy of ruthless honesty. In an especially galling episode, Patty invited a friend named Charlotte Martin, a French model, to stay at their new home after the woman's boyfriend, Eric Clapton, guitarist for Cream and the Yardbirds, had kicked her to the curb. Patty observed that George was going above and beyond in providing a shoulder, and who knew what else for Martin to cry on? Martin, for her part, seemed less than distraught. Patty split. Only after several days did George call to tell her that Charlotte Martin was gone. This hardly erased the betrayal, the shocking realization that not only was her husband drifting away from her, but that he didn't even care to spare her feelings. What Patty didn't know at the time was that Eric Clapton had dumped this girl in part because he was far more interested in Patty herself. Sure, she could tell that Clapton liked her and was maybe attracted to her, but not that it went beyond that. And at the beginning, maybe it didn't. It was more like lust for Eric Clapton and jealousy of his friend George, who appeared to have everything, while Clapton struggled to even hold a band together. When he started dating Patty's younger sister, Paula, Patty never imagined that Clapton was using her sister as a substitute. Then one morning, Patty received a letter at home. It said, Dearest one, as you have probably gathered, my own home affairs are a galloping farce, which is rapidly degenerating day by intolerable day. It seems like an eternity since I last saw or spoke to you. The letter went on to ask if she still loved her husband and urged her to write back. Please do this. Whatever it may say, my mind will be at rest. All my love, E. She had no idea what this was about and even showed the letter to George. They dismissed it as some crazy person, and maybe it was. But then Eric Clapton called to see if she received his note. Patty was flattered, no doubt. Hell, any romantic attention was a nice surprise lately. 
but she dismissed it as more of the kind of flirtation that had gone on between them. But flirtation became, at least, infatuation. Eric and Patty exchanged letters and had secret meetings, but she still resisted his pleas to leave George. Patty was at a party at Robert Stigwood's house. Stigwood was Clapton's manager and threw the kind of big soirees that George hated. Lots of people, lots of bullshit. He wouldn't come. In the early morning hours, Patty was alone with Eric in the garden. At least she thought they were alone. What's going on? came an unmistakable Scouse accent. George had shown up looking for her, finally spotting her looking cozy with his friend. I have to tell you, man, Clapton told George. I'm in love with your wife. To George, who had both eyes and ears, this was not exactly a bombshell confession. He made fun of what he viewed as an absurd situation and then asked Patty who she was going with. George, I'm coming home, she said, and they left Eric in the garden, despondent. What George and Eric both knew was that the Harrisons' marriage was just short of doomed. The only one who held out hope was Patty. But why? Why would she want to stay with a man so clearly without passion for her, while another is openly desperate for her? Patty confronted an open psychic wound. She thought of her mother, Diana, her mother who had been born in India, in fact, to a father in the Indian army, but was then sent away to be educated in England. After Patty was born in 1944, Diana and her husband, a man she didn't love named Jock Boyd, moved the family to Kenya, where Diana's father had built a big house. Young Patty loved Africa, but at age eight, everything began to split open. She was sent to a boarding school in Nakuru, feeling unwanted and abandoned. How could they do this to me, Patty thought. What did I do? Why am I being punished like this? On one school holiday, Patty returned home, but it was to a strange new house, occupied by a strange new man. Patty, say hello to your new father. Patty thought, new father? Who is this guy? Where is daddy? Her parents had split up, and her mother remarried all while Patty had been at school. Patty was too dumbfounded to even ask questions. She just shook the guy's hand. This began years of being shuttled between her real father's home, her boarding school, and her grandparents' house, longing only to get back to her mother, who had seemingly vanished back in England with her new husband and new children. Eventually, Patty and her brother Colin were sent for but then foisted off on some great aunts and later to a convent school. Her real father was distant, unknowable, and had cheated on Diana. Her stepfather was abusive and eventually also cheated on Diana. And Diana, well, Diana couldn't be counted on. Patty didn't escape the turmoil until she turned 17 and went to London. Then she buried it deep down and started her new life but trauma recalls trauma. And now here she was, in the ruins of one relationship, hesitant to give it up for a new one. Eric Clapton turned his painful yearning into some of the best songs of the era. Bell Bottom Blues, 
I looked away, and especially Layla, an anguished and pretty explicit plea to Patty. He recorded them with his new band, Derek and the Dominoes, on an album called Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs. Clapton was so convinced that the songs would get through to her that he invited her over to listen to the album. He blasted Layla at her, and she was both incredibly moved and totally overwhelmed. In a way, it worked. Patty gave in and slept with him. But in another, it didn't, because she still wouldn't leave George. Her life was madness. It didn't help that they were all drunk and stoned so much of the time by 1970, the year the Beatles split up. George and Patty smoked a ton of pot and were getting heavy into cocaine. Eric Clapton, already a burgeoning alcoholic, escaped his romantic torment over Patty by settling into a deep heroin haze. Apart from one or two glimpses, Patty would not see him again for four years. George and Patty's breakup was agony, dragged out over several years. With Patty and Eric Clapton's emotional affair out in the open, George took it as license to do whatever he wanted. He went to Spain with Chrissy Wood, the wife of Faces guitarist Ronnie Wood. When Ronnie found out, he seemed completely unbothered, although he did take advantage of the opportunity to sleep with the jilted Mrs. Harrison. Worst of all was George's affair with Ringo Starr's wife Maureen, who started brazenly coming around their home to see George. As with all his affairs, he tried to gaslight Patty, telling her she was paranoid while also doing nothing to hide it. The news of his transgression sent the scattered Beatles camp reeling. John Lennon called it virtual incest. His relationship with George never recovered. Patty confronted Maureen, telling her she didn't like what was going on. Maureen simply said, tough. So Patty finally called Ringo. Have you ever thought about why your wife doesn't come home at night? It's because she's here. While Ringo was furious, he didn't go full Ronnie Wood and try to sleep with Patty, but he did offer her a job. George had given Patty a nice camera a few years earlier, and she was getting very into her photography. Ringo was working on a movie and asked her to take the still shots. The movie tanked, but it was a great experience for Patty, who was finally doing something on her own and was able to forget briefly about the sorry state of her marriage. She called off the marriage in July of 1974. She walked into the recording studio of their home and said to George, we are living a ludicrous and hateful life. Despite having spent considerable time and energy trying intentionally to blow up his marriage, George Harrison made one half-hearted attempt to get her to stay, telling her he'd try to make it better. But Patty flew to Los Angeles the next day to stay with her sister Jenny and Jenny's then-husband, Mick Fleetwood. A week later, Eric Clapton called. Word reached him that she finally left George. Eric had kicked heroin, and he asked her to come join him on tour. Joining Eric Clapton on tour meant drinking. Booze took the place of heroin as his addiction of choice. His routine on tour was to wake up and drink Cavassier and 7-Up until 4 p.m. when his manager would stop him. Then they'd pour coffee down his throat and force him into a cold shower. 
He'd get as sober as he could and then get shoved out on stage. Sometimes it didn't work, and Clapton would lie down on the stage, still playing some pretty good guitar. Was this just life on the road? Patty didn't know. She'd never been on tour. A lot of what was happening was new to her. But this, this didn't seem right. But she was in love, and they were enjoying finally being together. Patty had forgotten what it felt like having someone so grateful to be with her. It was like a dream. Eric, still guilty over having made such a bold play for his friend's wife, started calling her Nell. Easier to avoid the association of Patty and Harrison in his mind. To every new person she met, she was Nell. Patty didn't object, though having her very name stripped from her could not have been good for her psyche. Not an idyllic honeymoon phase for the star-crossed lovers finally united. Eric was romantic, sure, but ultimately a narcissistic and destructive person at this point. A streak of anger quickly emerged, and it was aimed at women. Clapton's mother had been just 16 when she had him. The people he thought were his parents were, in fact, his grandparents, and he grew up believing that his mother was actually his sister. He learned the truth when he was nine, and after that, women were not to be trusted. He didn't understand platonic friendships with women, and as a result, he was wildly jealous of any male friends Patty might have, and that included her relationship with George Harrison. Despite everything that had happened, despite the jealousy and backstabbing, the betrayal and the one-upmanship, Patty, Eric, and George all remained friendly. Then George met a woman who worked for his record company in Los Angeles, Olivia Arias. Patty was understandably upset when she learned that George, the first great love of her life, was getting remarried. And that fact aggravated Eric, who expressed his confusion and hurt in a self-pitying little song called Golden Ring. It seemed to Patty that he could only express himself in song. When it came to actual communication, Well, Eric just couldn't do it. Now that she was with Eric Clapton, Patty's public image as a muse began to take shape. The legend of Layla, a love triangle with two friends, one a Beatle and now solo star, and the other, one of the great British blues guitarists of all time, competing for the heart of a beautiful woman. It developed into mythic proportions. The songs written for her were now utterly beloved. The Beatles' Something, a classic cited by no less an authority than Frank Sinatra as one of the greatest love songs ever written, and the unvarnished love songs on Clapton's Layla album. And Eric continued to write songs in Patty's name, including the ballad Wonderful Tonight from his hit LP Slow Hand. Patty could scarcely conceive of the magnificence being assigned to her. She was awestruck to have inspired such great artists to such great heights, of course, but also, it was too much. It just wasn't real. And being held to that kind of standard was toxic. It obscured what was real. In a way, it was like being a model had been. Idealized imagery, but magnified. It was too much pressure for any mere mortal. Songs like Layla are just a conceit a projection of perfection. After all, 
Who wants to hear a song about the bullshit of everyday life, arguments, and boredom? But as it happens, Wonderful Tonight started as exactly that, written while Clapton was getting impatient, waiting for Patty to get ready to go out. Do I look all right? Yeah, yeah, you look wonderful. Let's go. As Patty faced the reality of her life with her alcoholic, philandering husband, it became torture to hear that song, a symbol of the rift between image and reality. And the reality was that Eric Clapton was a wreck. He kept himself occupied with parties, drinking, recording, and touring. So unless Patty was partying or drinking, there was no place for her. Wives and girlfriends had been banned altogether from the tour. Patty knew what went on in her absence. By Eric's own account, as soon as Patty was out of sight, even on that first tour, he behaved outrageously with women. Patty wouldn't hear from him for a month or more at a time. She was more isolated than she'd been even in the worst times with George. And somehow, Eric's drinking got worse. He needed alcohol every five hours maximum, or else his body went into full revolt. He kept a tumbler by his bedside for nighttime maintenance. Drunk literally all of the time, whatever control he might have had over himself disintegrated. Patty was coming home from visiting with her sister, who lived nearby the house she shared with Eric. She had to get back because she had a friend staying over, another model she'd become friendly with while Eric was away. Patty walked into the house. Eric sat together with this model, Jenny. Patty stopped but stayed quiet. The vibe in the room was not good. She walked out. When she came back a while later, Eric and Jenny hadn't moved, sitting very close together. He was obviously plastered. Patty began to say something to Jenny, but Eric cut her off. Can't you see we're having a really intense and intimate conversation here? Why, Patty said. Because I'm in love with this girl. Go away and leave us alone. Just fuck off. Patty was stunned by this echo of what had happened with George and Eric's French girlfriend years before. Shaking and crying, she left the house and went back to her sister's. Two days later, she called Eric. I'm leaving, she told him. Unlike the episode with George, though, Eric replied, Good. We really need a bit of a break. Jenny, the model, was still there. Patty flew to L.A., crying so hard that the stewardess asked her to move to the back of the plane. She was upsetting the other passengers. After a couple of weeks away, Eric called. He wanted to marry her. What? Eric was about to start a North American tour and wanted her to come to Arizona to get married before it started. Patty talked it over with her friends and then said, Yes. They had a ceremony and reception with some friends and family in Tucson, and then the tour started. Patty joined him for four cities, happy and proud. He brought her out on stage to sing Wonderful Tonight to her. The crowds went wild. Just before they hit New Orleans, Eric said to her, So, why don't you fly back to L.A., get your things there, and go home? Stunned. Again. One of the roadies on the tour spilled it. 
Jenny the model was waiting at the hotel in New Orleans. When everyone on the tour found out what was going on, they all threatened to mutiny. The band, the crew, no one would accept it. Eric's manager ejected Jenny from the tour. Patty could cry and yell at Eric all she wanted, but they both knew that she wasn't going anywhere. So did Eric Clapton marry Patty because he realized how much he loved her? Did he do it just so she would stick around? No and no. He did it on a bet. His manager, Roger, he told him to be careful about being seen with other women or else he'd end up in the papers. Eric found it laughable to think anyone would care that much about him. They ended up betting 10,000 pounds that Roger couldn't get Eric's picture printed. The next morning, the Daily Mail headline read, Rock star Eric Clapton will marry Patty Boyd. With Patty eight hours behind in California, Eric had to act fast to make the headlines true. But then it went on just like it had. Drinking, carousing, disgraceful behavior. Eric would even go to rehab to get sober a couple of times. But it didn't take. When Patty would stop drinking, Eric would harass her back into it. He hated it when she was sober. Then he wrote The Shape You're In, a stinging song about how she drank too much. Eric only cared about her when she left. For him, the interesting part was the pursuit. When he had what he was after, he lost interest. And Patty's deep-rooted terror of being abandoned kept her coming back each time. Even when he took her out for dinner to tell her he had feelings for a woman he'd met on tour in Italy. I love you, he said, but I think I love her too. Patty immediately buried this confession deep inside. This was not happening. But a few months later, it got worse. The woman, Lori, was having his baby. Patty had wanted a child for 20 years but was unable to conceive. She and Eric even tried IVF. She was in the middle of treatment at that moment. This time, Patty wasn't shocked. She was in shock. She could barely speak. She couldn't form thoughts. He told her how beautiful Lori was, that she was so strong and a great photographer to boot. Patty hit her all-time low. Self-esteem, zero. She didn't leave him. She didn't do anything. Eric called her when the baby was born, genuinely expecting her to be happy for him. Maybe light a cigar. After visiting the baby, he came home gushing, a proud papa. And what did Patty receive for sticking around? Drunken abuse. Finally, that did it. She got a lawyer. And then, early on the morning of her 43rd birthday, Eric Clapton, drunk and screaming, burst into the room where she was sleeping and kicked her out of the house, throwing some of her things through the window. Incredibly, after a few days, Eric began bombarding her with romantic letters, making apologies, asking her to come back. Incredibly, she thought about it. She was just so beaten down. Fortunately for Patty, her sister had months earlier convinced her to start therapy. It was the only thing that kept her upright. And what her counselor helped her realize was the obvious. Patty had reached her limit. 
Patty Boyd was having a dream. In it, she was living as a fashion model in London in the 1960s. She married one of the Beatles and traveled the world meeting the most fascinating people. A new man fell desperately in love with her, wrote epic songs for her, fought for her, and won her heart. And now she was awake. Her whole life had been like a shimmering fantasy, and in reality, it felt like she'd achieved nothing. Patty looked around her and saw very little. Eric had convinced her not to take money from George when they divorced. Eric's people had run circles around her lawyer, who landed her a small one-time payment and a flat. Patty needed to work and her modeling days were long behind her. There was one thing Patty had always been good at, and that was photography. She joined the Royal Photographic Society and got to work, taking classes and exams, practicing on friends. She was hired for shoots by OK Magazine and the Sunday Express. Travel photography came next. Then her old friend Ronnie Wood, who had gone on to join the Rolling Stones, became known for his visual art and was commissioned by Andrew Lloyd Webber for an installation. Patty did the still photography for him. She had an exhibition of her older photographs from her time with George and Eric. It appeared in San Francisco, London, Dublin, Toronto, and Sydney. She published a book called My Life in Pictures, as well as a best-selling autobiography. This was a whole new feeling, being taken seriously for her own work. After Patty left him, Eric Clapton got clean and sober for good. When he got out of rehab, he wanted to see her more than anyone. It was the beginning of a new friendship for them, maybe even his first platonic relationship with a woman. He later invited her back to the house they shared to meet his son, Connor. It was both beautiful and terrible for her. She was happy for Eric, and Connor was an adorable kid, but Patty mourned what could have been for her. She was crushed when she heard that Connor had died in an accident. She wrote to Eric at home, and he called her and asked her to come to the funeral. She was worried for him that he'd be unable to resist drinking again, but he held it together. George Harrison remained a big brother figure in Patty's life, and when he died in 2001, she was wrecked. Eric had been an intense passion, but her time with George had a magic to it. But this isn't about them. This is about Patty Boyd, the real woman behind the illusion on the magazine cover, the person who realized she didn't have to live up to the artificial perfection of someone's fantasy, who could stand on her own when there was no one to lean on, and who was much more than a muse. This is about a girl. About a Girl is produced by Scott Janovitz and executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. The show was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Scott Janovitz. For sources used in this episode, go to aboutagirlpod.com. Music by Scott Janovitz. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.